I know Thanksgiving has been celebrated and Christmas is upon us. My prayer is that if you're seeking Jesus, you'll find Him. Just like the man in the video. There you are. But today I'm going to finish up this uh, situation with Jerusalem and Peter. And we're going to move into another end of it as we look at the 11th chapter of Acts. And I will cover the entire 11th chapter today, so buckle up. (laughs) We're going to do this. The apostles and the believers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So, when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him and said, You went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them? Well, there's three things that are parallels to where we are today in the world. Uh, Our reaction, our response, and our relief. You know, it's kind of interesting. We finished up the 10th chapter. Peter was there in the house of Cornelius. Cornelius had sent three emissaries to get Peter down in Joppa to come and tell them how to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. These three messengers arrived. Peter had this vision. And Peter went back to uh, the area with them. And as he was speaking to Cornelius and his entire household, they came to know the Lord. It's an exciting time. The Bible says they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. So he did. Then he goes to Jerusalem to give a report to the, the home church there in Jerusalem And you'd think he'd be met with applause and and hallelujahs and praise the Lord's. And not so fast. They looked at him and said, "You, you were eating with Gentiles? I mean, really? Is that what you were doing, Peter? That completely transgresses all of our laws. I mean, it's in the bylaws. You can't do that. That's an inside joke. Some won't even get it, you know, it's okay. The church reacted. Now let me ask you, have you ever been on a mission trip where you come back to a whole home audience? Or sometimes even antagonism. I always caution, especially first-time people that go on mission trips with us. Whatever you do, I'm going to tell you now and I'll tell you on the way home. You're going to come back excited, ecstatic about what the Lord is doing in the lives of people in other parts of this world. And you're going to have visions of these uh, people just just going to swirl in your mind about their smiles, the joy they had when they trusted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And when you go back, when I'm talking to youth, I'll tell them you're going to go back to your your parents. And for the most part, they're going to go, well, that's nice. Go do your homework. You know, or to the adults, it, we come back to family and friends, co-workers, and we want to share with somebody what, what the Lord has done, and they kind of meet you with indifference, apathy, some even hostility. Why would you go over there? You know, we got people that need to be saved over here in America. What are you doing spending your money over there? And so forth. Well... Not everybody's going to be on the same page with you. In, in our churches, we all sing from the same hymnals, but most of the time we're in different 
psalms, different hymns in that same hymnal. And so we're not always together. But the church reacted. They were negative at first. They cannot believe it. Then Peter shared his vision. Uh, Verses 4 through 10, he talks about how Lord took that sheet and Lord, and in heaven when he was up on that housetop, he was hungry. And God appealed to his hunger. And he said, look at these animals. They're both, they're both considered clean and unclean. And he said, arise, Peter, eat. Peter said, well, no. I have never put anything unclean in my body. God forbid that me, an orthodox person that I am, would transgress that. No, Lord, not me. God says, don't you dare call unclean what I have cleansed. And by the way, he continues on, there are three visitors at the door. You need to go see them now. And as they were calling out to Peter, Peter uh, recites, not only did I have a vision from the Lord and I had the Spirit talk to me in this trance. And I replied, surely not, Lord, nothing impure or unclean has ever entered my mouth. The voice said, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. That happened three times. Three guests, three visitors. Don't call what I have cleaned unclean. You know? Folks, for those of us fishermen out there, God just called us to to catch them. He's going to clean them. All right? That's what God does. I don't clean them up. God cleans them. I'm just called to go fishing. Come follow me and I'll make you fishers of men, Jesus told the disciples. And so here, right then, three men had been sent to me in Caesarea. The Spirit told us to have no hesitation about going with them. Then I got six brothers, six of these circumcised brothers. These are Jewish Christians from Jerusalem. These are people that probably are just as reluctant as you are to hear the testimony about the Holy Spirit coming into the lives of people that you don't think deserve it. And so I took them with me as witnesses, six of them. And then he says to them, not only were we visited, he says, as I began to speak, I was there. I entered the man's house. He was a Gentile. Cornelius was a Roman soldier, a centurion, an officer. Of a hundred men plus. He had his whole family there. And all of his friends. All of them were Gentiles. None of them were Jews. And not only did I enter their house. And yes he's implying. I know that's against our, our Jewish law. But I ate with them. And you would say God forbid. But God didn't forbid. What he had cleansed. He told me not to call unclean. Enter the house. Go with them. Enter the house. Talk to them. And there was this crowd of family and friends there. And oh, I I just, I could see how the Lord was working in their lives. And I began to preach to them as I began to speak. Somewhere in my message, the Holy Spirit interrupted me and came down upon everyone who believed in Jesus Christ. And look what he says in verse 15. He says, it came on them as He had come on us at the beginning. The beginning of what? The beginning of the church. When we were there in Jerusalem at Pentecost, in that upper room, here it was some 50 days after the crucifixion of Jesus. And we were in that upper room waiting for what? We didn't know. 
And then all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit came on all of us who were waiting there. That's the only parallel thing I could see. It, it wasn't like when he went to Samaria, into the villages of Samaria, because they imparted the Holy Spirit by laying on of hands. It wasn't like the Ethiopian eunuch. It wasn't like any of those other experiences. The only thing that Peter could parallel it with is his experience there at Pentecost. Because when God came down on the people at Pentecost, and those Peter preached and those 3,000 people came forward to be saved and were baptized after that, and Peter says, at that point, that's the only parallel. God said at that point, I have come into this world and I've come to the Jewish nation. Now, he says, with Cornelius and all of those family and friends that were gathered together in that household, he's saying, now I have come to the Gentile, the non-Jewish nations. And this is the demonstration, the same that I did days ago. That, that many time ago. That same experience that you had at Pentecost is the, what they are experiencing here to demonstrate to you that the Lord, the Holy Spirit has also been given to the non-Jewish world. You need to see that, Peter. And Peter would see that very clearly. Wow. So then Peter says, what does he do? He remembers a verse. Now, let me just share with you. So many of you are so reluctant, hesitant about sharing Christ with anybody. You know, I guess you're afraid of rejection. Maybe you're afraid of getting it wrong. But I can tell you, when you begin to pray, when somebody is talking to you and you're praying, God's going to put a verse on your heart. I don't know what verse He's going to put on your heart. It, sometimes, with me, it varies with the situation. But look at what verse that came to His mind. In verse 16, he said, Then I remembered what the Lord had said. John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Whoa. And then all of a sudden, that gift of the verse that the Holy Spirit has given you becomes extremely appropriate and pertinent for that particular situation. So then Peter continues by saying, So if God gave them the same gift He gave us who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could stand in God's way? When the Spirit of God is moving, would you dare try to thwart Him? Would you dare be a stumbling block instead of a stepping stone? All of us one day are going to give an account of ourselves for how we have either behaved or responded or replied or, or talked to somebody in a way that has become more of a stumbling block than a stepping stone. I pray every day that I, I'm not a stumbling block, you know. I want to be a stepping stone. I want to help other people know Jesus. And Peter is saying, who am I that I would stand in the way? I'm not going to be a stumbling block. Not me. And so, when they heard this, these Jewish Christians, they had no further objections. Now, who would object to that? The Lord was moving. People came to know the Lord in that household, and I baptized them. Who would object to that? Well, they would, there could be some, and later on there will be. You'll see later on in Acts. When they heard this, they had no further objections, and praise God. 
saying so then. Even to Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Even to Gentiles. God could stoop so low. Wow. Well, you know what? I can remember I was, uh, my first ministry was as a youth pastor. And we had hundreds of kids in our youth group. And it was really interesting because the Jesus movement was just moving through the churches at that particular time. I liked it. I was young. I was energetic. Man, some of the older church members didn't like it at all. My mother took issue with it big time. She said, huh, did you see that girl come in and sit in front of us? I said, "Uh, yeah. She said, well, you know she was wearing blue jeans? I said, yeah, I saw that. I couldn't worship. She had a Jesus patch on her rear pocket. She said, I couldn't worship Jesus looking at a patch on that girl's rear end. I looked at her and I said, Mother, are you kidding me? She was there. She was there. And praise God that she was there and the energy level. And then I was in in seminary with a guy that called himself a Jesus freak. Well, you know what they were talking about here in Antioch? They ultimately were called Jesus freaks. Is what it amounted to. Now, Verse 19, not only does the church react, but now it's responding. Now their negativity has been turned to a positive response. So then even to the Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. We get it. At least intellectually we get it. Maybe not from our heart, but we get it intellectually. We hear what you're saying, Peter. And now verse 19, he says, Now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word um, only among Jews. They hadn't gotten it yet. And so you remember, and we, we hit all of that in early times. We go to the, uh, the passages there in earlier Acts where Saul from Tarsus was holding the garments of the people that were stoning Stephen, one of the original deacons. And there was a massive persecution that broke out against the non-Jewish uh, uh, adherents, those who had claimed to, that Jesus was the Messiah, that they were Christ followers. There was a huge persecution that broke out not only in Jerusalem, but in the environs. And they began to imprison them, jail them, sometimes even stone them to death. And so many of these fled. And look out, it's, they, they traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among Jews. That's about to change. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also. Because these Cyprus and Cyrene believers were Greek-speaking. Telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. Word got to the mother church in Jerusalem what had happened, that a revival had broken out among non-Jewish people, non-Hebrew-speaking people, in Antioch. So what do they do? They send somebody 
the news of this reached the church in Jerusalem and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. Barnabas. Wow, what a good guy. When he arrived and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with their hearts. Why Antioch? There are a number of Antiochs mentioned in the scripture, but this Antioch is the capital of Syria. Antioch, for those of you that may not know, not only was the capital of Syria, but it was the third largest city in the entire Roman Empire. It was third behind Rome and Alexandria, Egypt, and then Antioch, Syria. It was at the mouth of a river that flowed into the Mediterranean. It became a port stop. It was, it was huge as a city and had a nickname of being the Golden One. It was uh, a city that was embellished with, with beautiful, ornate buildings. It had a population of some 500,000 people at this particular time. Its main street was four miles long, and it was paved with marble. Think about that. We think our cities are so opulent today. And yet, it was lined on both sides of this four miles of marble pavement with marble colonnades that lined the street. And guess what? It was the only city at the time whose streets were lighted at night. I mean, this was some kind of a city. It was not only a busy port filled with people. It had wealth. It had power. It had politicians. It had businessmen. It had These were the movers and the shakers of the region. However, it was a wicked city like Corinth. The entire city was filled with, with the pantheon of Roman gods and, and Greek gods and even Syrian gods. But the local shrine was dedicated to Daphne. Those of you who studied Greek mythology know that Apollo pursued Daphne until she, she asked to become one of the laurel trees in the groves that he pursued her in. Well... This particular temple dedicated to Daphne was one that had temple prostitutes and they would have orgies as part of their religious uh, ceremonies uh, reenacting Apollo's quest of Daphne. And so uh, it, was, it was a wicked city. It was extremely wealthy but extremely wicked. Now, when the believers fled Jerusalem after Stephen was stoned and settled there, uh, a revival began to break out at this particular time. The church in Jerusalem sent Barnabas. Barnabas was from Cyprus. We learned that in chapter 4. We don't know anything about Barnabas other than the fact that he was from Cyprus. In chapter 4, we're introduced to him when in the growth of the new church, they were all giving their... Uh, financial resources to the church to be distributed among those that had needs. Barnabas, it said, bought and sold a piece of property and turned the proceeds over to the apostles to be distributed. Then we see Barnabas in chapter 9. What was the deal there? Barnabas was obviously a highly respected uh, Jewish believer, though he spoke Greek and was from Cyprus. 
And he was a man who uh, was held in high esteem there in the church. They nicknamed him Barnabas. His name was originally Joseph, but they nicknamed him Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. The Bible says that he was a good man. And so they tabbed Barnabas to go to Antioch. Barnabas was the one that had introduced Saul to the new Christian church there in Jerusalem because they didn't like him. The Hellenistic or the Greek-speaking Jews wanted to kill Saul. And so Barnabas had introduced it to him and he had a, a period where he could move freely among the believers. And yet then the Greek-speaking Jews uh, really detested Saul because probably he was the kind of guy that, that had, or he was the one that had instructed relatives, friends to be imprisoned, to be beaten, to be killed in certain circumstances when he was following the dictates of the Sanhedrin. And so some of the disciples got him out of there in a hurry, put him down to Caesarea, and then from there he boarded ship and went up to his hometown in Tarsus. So there you have a background study on him. But the Bible says here that when when Barnabas got to Antioch, when he arrived, he saw what the grace of God had done. That grace means the the goodness of God poured out in someone's life. Ephesians 4, 7 says, Grace was given to each of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. You see, Barnabas came to observe, not control. He wasn't going to direct them to do anything. He just wanted to see what the Lord was doing. The Bible says, He saw the grace of God has done. He was glad and encouraged them to continue on. He was a good man, verse 24 says, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. He was willing to accept whatever role the Lord would give him in this role of finding out what had happened. And as he was there, he uh, was expecting to be led by God and would respond according to the Holy Spirit's leadership. Well, he trusted in his faith, not his feeling. Big deal. It is a big deal. He was a good man. And a great number of people were brought to the Lord. It got overwhelming for him in this city of half a million. I don't know how many people, but I'm sure there were soldiers that were coming to know the Lord. I'm sure there were, there were perhaps politicians, business people, uh, even, you know, we know that the Lord was moving among the priesthood of, of the Jews. And so we can assume that God was stirring people of all ilks, of all economic plat, uh, platforms. They came, of all educational, they came, and and the Lord was moving among them. And then Barnabas realized it was too great for him. So what does he do? He encourages these people in what he was uh, talking to them in verse 23. He encouraged them to remain true, to remain faithful, to maintain what you have. In other words, is what this means. Don't go searching for something else. In all this pantheon of gods of the Greeks and the Romans and the Syrians, don't go searching for something else. You have trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. That's what you need to focus on. When you lose that focus, you begin to drift. And when you start drifting, if you don't correct that course quickly, you start drifting out. And before long, you're no longer in fellowship with either the Lord or His 
church family. And so he's encouraging them. What? He's encouraging them to be faithful. You don't need anything new. The Holy Spirit has given you all you need, he's saying to the church. And then he says, with all your hearts, steadfast purpose. The Greek literally means according to a set plan. And what is the set plan? The set plan is to focus on Jesus. Do what He wants to. Don't focus on your programs. Don't focus on your personnel. Don't focus on anything else but Jesus. And learn what He wants of you and then be obedient to abide by that dictate. Whatever it might be. And so a great number of the people, the Bible says, were brought to the Lord to the extent that it was overwhelming. Barnabas knew he needed additional help. So who would he think of? There's that Saul. You know, most theologians will tell you about right now, it's been some 10 years since Saul was put on that ship bound to Tarsus. We know from Galatians that Paul was all about uh, ministering to the churches at Galatia and Cilicia and some of the areas. So we assume that he was very active in what he was doing. But Saul had been uh, ignored basically by the church in Jerusalem for 10 years. Now my question to you this morning is, what is God preparing you to do? I believe this coronavirus has been a gift from God in a lot of ways. Oh, it's been irritating. I don't like masks, you know. I don't like wearing them. I do, but I don't like it. I, I don't like the fact that we, we are sequestered in our homes, that we have uh, limited mobility anymore as far as where we can go, who we can see. But let me tell you something. The fact that God has, has called us to sit in our rooms in a disciplinary fashion, He has begun to school us in exactly what He wants of this congregation, what He wants of you as an individual, where He wants you to serve, how He wants you to serve, what the future looks like now that we have steeled our resolve to, to serve Him regardless of circumstance or situations. No matter what happens in our country today, we are focused on the Lord with all our hearts. And so he says, he went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And the Greek on that, to look for Saul, means that it was a really an intent look. He had to really hunt for Saul of Tarsus. Well, and brought him back. Why? Saul was brilliant. Barnabas was a man that was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. Everybody loved him. They all respected him. But Barnabas was thinking, if I'm going to step this thing up a notch, if they're going to get the training that they really need, I need somebody who is a scholar. Saul can speak Greek. He can speak Hebrew. He's a brilliant man. I've watched him talk to the Sanhedrin. I've watched him deal with the church at Jerusalem. I've talked to him. He's the man I want. It's been quite a while. But nevertheless, God put it on his heart. And so he brings Saul back with him. And the Bible says that when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. For a whole year, they discipled them. 
They showed them how to focus. They showed them what was necessary. And then it says the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. Now, I find it kind of interesting that when, let's go back about 10 years. Here was Saul of Tarsus. He had been commissioned by the Sanhedrin to go to Antioch. You better find those Christian people, those people that call themselves Christ followers. Just, and he was just bent on finding these believers in their homes and dragging them out and imprisoning them, beating them, or killing them. That was his goal. Remember, it was outside the gates of Antioch where Saul had that vision, where he was struck blind for three days until he was visited by one of God's messengers. Now he's going back to Antioch. Don't you see the lovely irony there? I mean, God can do what he wants to do, when he wants to do, with whom he wants to do it, and how he wants to do it. He's, I, I stand amazed at the Lord. And there he is a whole year teaching these believers, telling them everything that he has experienced, telling them what he knows about Jesus, telling him everything that they need to know. During this time, and they were called Christians first at Antioch, the word Christian is only used three times in the New Testament. This is the first time. And it's only used two more times after this. The word Christian, Christ, comes from the Greek for Messiah. And I-A-N on the end of a word is a Latin suffix. And it literally means pertaining to the party of or belonging to the party of the Messiah. Interesting that you'd put Greek and Latin together, but that's what it means. And so they were called Christians first at Antioch, and they were Christ followers. Now, it could have been a, a derision, derisive term, because there were clubs and all kinds of beliefs in those days, and the Temple of Daphne and all these other gods and goddesses, and, and they were they would be seen as, as part of those particular pursuits. And it could have been a derisive term to say, look at these people. They act like uh, Jesus. They look like Jesus. They behave like he expects them to behave. And yet, here they are, Christians. Well, I just pray that if God arrests me for being a Christian, I pray there's enough evidence to convict me. You know, that's just... So they stayed for a full year and discipled the Christians. What would you be called? Would people see the grace of God in you? Would people be able to look at your life, listen to your words, see your activity schedule, and see the grace of God actively at work in you? Well, the final thing I want to bring, and I want to close on this one, is not only was the church uh, reactive and responsive, but they were a church that sent relief. The Bible says during this time prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them named Agabus stood up through the Spirit, predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, as each one was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. This they did by sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. The church began relief efforts. Even prior to the famine, 
because they believed in what the prophecy had been shared with them. Ancient historians Josephus, Suetonius, and Tacitus all mention the famine in the days of Claudius in A.D. 44 and 45. So it was a reality, and it hit Judea harder than it hit some of the other regions. The church responded to the prophet by sending relief to the mother church there in Jerusalem, and I find that interesting. And I have served in so many different capacities in disaster relief through hurricanes, through tornadoes, through fires and floods and whatever the case might be. And in every situation, you find people that are saying to you as a believer, why are you here? Why would you come help us? Why are you donating your time and energy to do these things? To clean out houses, to help people with clothing or, or food, or, or in many cases, to rebuild their homes. Why would you do that? I remember I was, uh, I was at a home, a neighborhood, and after Katrina had hit, we were headquartered there in Bay St. Louis, and a guy came up to me and he said, you're Baptist, right? And I said, yep. And he said, uh, do you have to be Baptist to get help? And I said, no, you don't. He said, well, all of our church and our pastors have gone. I, I don't have anybody I can turn to. I said, well, you can turn to us. And it's during those times that the Lord begins to move in your heart and move in the hearts of the people to open their, break down their resistance, to open their hearts, knowing that maybe these are good people after all. They see the grace of God in you and begin to respond to it, and you verbally begin to tell them about Jesus. Just tell them the truth. That's what Peter did. Just tell them what Jesus did in your life. That's all. Nobody can, can refute your testimony. It's yours. It's your history. It's your story. Just tell them. Wow. Well, now you're listening to this message. You may be one that is resisting. You're reacting in some form or fashion. Maybe you're not. Maybe you feel that all of this is just not for you. Well, let me just say that this Christmas season, I pray that you find Jesus because there will never be peace in your life. That emptiness in your heart will never be filled until you know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. So if you've never trusted Him today, I offer Him to you. Open your heart to Him. Just ask Him to come into your life and make you what He wants you to be. Maybe you follow Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, but you've never followed Him in baptism or, or public profession of faith, which is your public response to Him. Jesus died publicly for you on a cross in a very agonizing fashion. The least we can do is live publicly for Him. And then there are those of you that are looking for a church home. We've got a great place here. If you're watching this online, Wherever you are, find you a church home that honors and glorifies the Lordship of Jesus Christ and jump right on in there. Unite with them. Well, we're here. I just pray that when you look at, at others, you see what the grace of God has done. Be glad and encourage them to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. Would you stand with me for prayer?